นโมทัสสะบุพพะทัวรหัตัวสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะโมทัสสะบุพพะทัวรหัตตัวสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะนโมทัสสะบุพพะทัวรหัตตัวสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะพุทธังธรรมังสังฆังนมัสสะเดียวเราไม่ได้ทำอะไรเลยเราไม่ได้ทำอะไรเลยเราไม่ได้ทำอะไรเลยเราไม่ได้ทำอะไรเลยเราไม่ได้ทำอะไรเลยเราไม่
and I don't think that you know my well I know my life was certainly not um, down the line in keeping with Buddhist teachings and it took me quite a long time before I started to really uh, do something about Buddhist teachings it was one thing to be inspired by it but when it came to actually doing something to actually turning the light of attention inwards and looking at this mind looking at this quality of attention I said what am I doing with my attention we've only got so much attention energy what do we pay attention to because what we pay attention to is what we get back well I could barely pay attention to anything for more than a few seconds my mind was all over the place my my attention was totally wobbly totally scattered but then, thankfully, uh, the Buddhist teachings, they give us these exercises, these practices we can do to steady attention, to focus attention, to concentrate attention. And in so doing, we generate energy. We generate spiritual energy, good energy, helpful energy. And that was a great realisation. So it moved a little bit away from the, just the mere ideal of being a Buddhist or this wonderful Buddhist teaching, which is certainly much better than anything else I've heard in my life. But there was still, there was still, I was operating on this habit a lot of the time, and I think this is true for most people. We conjure up an idea of how we should be. We read the Buddhist teachings and the scriptures, or we hear what the great teachers say, or we see how the great teachers are, and then we try and imitate them. And... Up to a point, that's okay. I mean, to have a great teacher, myself, having lived with Ajahn Chah and Ajahn Tate, these two teachers I lived with in Thailand, was, I'm eternally, and I'm not exaggerating, I'm eternally indebted and grateful to these beings for this example. However, I'm not like Ajahn Chah you know, or Ajahn Tate, or Ajahn Sumedha for that matter. I remember once when I was uh, started the monastery down in Devon and Ajahn Sumedha came down to visit and we went out for a walk and we were talking together and he turned to me and he says you don't have to be like me you know I said, oh what a relief <laughs> well clearly I'm nothing like Ajahn Sumedha I mean Ajahn is a great big American Leo military I'm just a guy from Tiamutu in New Zealand and you know I wouldn't join the military whatever they maybe do and uh, we're very different people. But there was something within me that had this idea, I'm supposed to be like Ajahn Sumato. You know, and it's understandable in the beginning. We have these images of the ideal and it motivates us, it generates energy and we move towards it. It's inspiring, uplifting. But there comes a point in practice where we've got to, we've got to really pull back from that. It's like when you're yachting or sailing across the ocean and you use the stars to get your bearings. It's very helpful to have a clear sky when you're sailing and you can see, you get your direction and you keep going back to it. And you keep... But do we expect to reach the stars? No. We don't, we don't relate to the stars as what we're going to actually reach. We relate to the stars as that which enables our going in the right direction. And so it is with ideals that we have the ideals, we're given ideals from the scriptures and from the teachers which inspire us and uplift us. But if we don't be really balanced in our application of mindfulness and how we relate to these ideals, we give away all our power. We give away all our authority. We're not doing what the Buddha wanted us to do, which is become our own authority, to really own our own authority, be in the centre of our life, to be our own refuge. 
as the Buddha said, you, only you can be your own refuge. Nobody else can be your refuge. You can, only you can be your own refuge. And to, to really own our own authority, to come back and say that we are 100% responsible for our suffering and we are 100% responsible for our freedom from suffering. To really come to that realisation, that feeling, that embodied whole heart, body, mind awareness, we've got to actually pull back from projecting out our authority onto the ideals, onto our teachers, onto the scriptures, onto any external object. So it's not dismissing the place of these external objects of inspiration, but as we proceed more and more in our practice, we feel like, we should feel like, we're hopefully feeling like we're taking it back for ourselves. Now the same thing applies with uh, our relationship to the meditation technique. In the beginning, we're like spiritual technicians, most of us, as we start off. We have this aspiration, this hope, this enthusiasm for transforming this character that we suffer as into something that's more beautiful, more suitable, more true. And so we use the meditation techniques and we give ourselves into them on a regular basis. But there comes a point where it may be what's happening is that we are investing too much, even in the way we engage the meditation technique. If we keep going back to the books, we keep going back to the teachers and say, what stage am I at now? Can you please tell me what stage am I at in my meditation? Can you please tell me what I'm supposed to do next? You know, I've come across this particular hindrance. There's these five hindrances. I've come across this hindrance. What am I supposed to do with this one? Yeah. Well, if we keep doing that, if we keep putting our authority out onto the teachers, onto the experts, onto the books, then we're not really doing our own practice. And so it's actually very important that as we, that we, as we progress in our meditation, that we letting go of the ideals and the image of how we should be and come back more and more to being like this. Being this. And this is where we get ente- uh, energy from. And we don't need to be afraid of intensity. You know, things can really get very intense. That's why all of you have come on retreat over the next week. Uh, no talking. If we find people talking, maybe have a little quiet word and still talking, well, we have a clearer word and then say bye-bye. Yeah, we take strictly the silence because it really helps build up the energy. It builds up the energy and then you get to this feeling of, I can't stand this anymore. It's getting so frustrating. Perfect. The meditation's working. That's exactly what's supposed to happen. The idea that you're going to come here and you know, all these nice smiley monks and inspiring Ajahn Punyo and inspiring Ajahn Kaliano here is just going to give you the goodies and you're all just going to get nice and peaceful. No way. You know, the intensity is going to build up. You can't eat when you want. You can't talk when you want. and You've got to sleep with people who snore and get up in the middle of the night and whatever. And So what's going to happen? Well, there's going to be an intensification. That's the strategy. That's the point. It's designed that way. That's what we do all the time. I mean, uh, you know, becoming a monk or a nun is really doing a course in applied frustration. That's what it is. It's like it's supposed to be frustrating. Because what's being frustrated is the commitment to my way. What's being frustrated is our habits. Uh, We've got so many rules, 227 just to start with, 
that, you know, as soon as you move out of heedlessness, bang, you hit a rule. And it hurts. But it's supposed to be that way because it's reminding us, actually, you're lost in heedlessness. You're lost in carelessness. Come back. Come back home. It's supposed to be that way. So intensity has its place. And that's, you know, building, if we understand this, that when, when, whether it's through going on retreat or whether it's taking on renunciation practices like not eating in the evening or not talking or whatever different renunciation practices one can take on. Or also it can be because of, um, you know, even sickness can bring about intensification. But if we understand the place of intensity or energy in practice, then we won't miss the opportunity. I was speaking earlier today to somebody about um, the, the, the most, one of the best opportunities apparently in our whole life for developing insight is when we're dying. And I don't remember what happened last time I died, but I've been told by those who know a lot more about it than I do that as you're dying, this is one of the best opportunities for developing insight because it's very clear now there's no point in hanging on. It's obvious. You're falling apart and, and clinging is obviously a, a big mistake. And so you've got a serious motivation for letting go. But is that going to be intense? I would think so. I would think the dying is probably going to be intense. You know, Most dying that I've seen or heard about is a pretty intense business. And, and so to really value that, to really appreciate this intensification and the place that it has in practice and where, how we generate it is very important. However, having said all that, um, if we are getting off on generating energy, we've got lots of energy and we've got lots of intensity, we can go very seriously out of balance. If we don't understand the principle of restraint, then all of that energy can cause us a lot of trouble. Some of you here, I don't know how many of you, some of you look too young, but many of you will realise that Today is the 40th anniversary of the very sad and untimely death of that brilliant poet and musician, Jim Morrison. And uh, it's, uh, it was a tragic thing that happened 40 years ago in Paris, and it's still debated today exactly why and how and what happened, but certainly there's no doubt it was a tragedy. And why was it a tragedy? The guy had lots of energy, no doubt about that, tremendous energy, wonderful, brilliant energy, and it was brilliant, it was radiant energy. But what he didn't have was containment. He didn't have restraint. He didn't know how to measure his relationship. He didn't know how to gauge his relationship with all that energy. It took him over and he became obsessed by it. And that's uh, that's sad. Um, It happens also in the spiritual dimension. People come across techniques and who knows what past life Kama they've brought with them and the way they can access energy, they may be very good and able to readily access energy. But if they don't have precision with that energy, then it's, uh, it's very dangerous. It's, I was um, thinking earlier today about this and how when I, I got my first quality stereo system, and uh, at the time it cost quite a bit of money, and... When it arrived, I was so chuffed with this system. I mean, I had a, it was, well, for me, it was a very good system, certainly much better than anything else I'd had. And, and I just couldn't wait to hear the sound. And so the potential is there, the desire is there, the enthusiasm is there, the love for good music is there. And uh, 
So, yeah, no question about the intensity and the energy. But I wired the thing up wrong and blew the speakers. Pop. That was all there was to it. I don't know if you've ever heard that sad sound. It's a very sad sound. Pop, you know, and they oh, my goodness. <laughs> it's really heartbreaking. <laughs> I don't remember what happened after that. I think I sunk into despair. I can't remember how I corrected the situation. But I remember that. What was the problem? What was the problem? It's very clear what the problem was. You know, I just didn't know how to measure or gauge my relationship with intensity. Enthusiasm for good music is pretty okay. But not if you're getting intoxicated by it. And I was intoxicated by it. And so how do we avoid the Jim Morrison syndrome? He was more than intoxicated. He, uh, He was taken over. He was possessed by it. How do we manage? How do we protect ourselves from that? Well, it's this ability... To say no, it's this, what the Buddha praised on so many ways and so many carriage, uh, occasions, restraint. Bad news if you're essentialist. I mean, who wants to know about restraint? I mean, the world, it's just, it's just not a word. It's like modesty and contentment. Nobody ever talks about restraint. But if you're in this process of transformation, of transforming the raw material of our wild, untamed passions into something that is truly beautiful and inherently good and beneficial for all beings, if we're engaged in this powerful exercise, we need to follow the rules. Uh, and one of the basic rules is this restraint. And so the restraint, if we understand restraint in the right way, with mindfulness, with, with careful consideration, then what comes from it is precision. And there's, there's a precision. There's, yes, there's intensity. Yes, we can... We can intensify the energy, whatever it is, whether it comes through sickness or through loss or through renunciate practices or through going on retreat, generate the energy. But there's also a precision of how we relate to it, how we apply ourselves to it. And this, again, likewise, is something that we can cultivate, we can train it. It's not just the case that, well, you're like this, you know. This is the way you're born and... You've got this astrological configuration and you're just all over the place. You know, you're just one of those people and the people, people might call it even creative or artistic. I don't think it's creative or artistic to be possessed. You know, look what happened to Tchaikovsky. I mean, beautiful music, but look what happened to the man. So understanding the place, whether it's a music or also in our own experience of meditation practice, to, to appreciate, yes, generating intensity, but also with precision. You know, do we know how to say no? Can we say no when some tremendously inspiring, enthusiastic image comes into our mind? And you know, maybe it's you know, you've been, maybe you've been meditating for many years, and there's some radiant, blasting insight comes to you and. And is this still restraint, or do we grab it and become it? My own spiritual conditioning, what I had when I grew up, was all about becoming. That basically you're damaged goods, and you've got to become something that's acceptable to the spiritual authorities. And if we come with that basic view, if that's how we generate energy, if that's how we, if that's how we approach the spiritual life, then what it can lead to is a lot, of, a lot of greed, even in the spiritual dimension. You know, we're always trying to become something better than what we are. Whereas what the Buddha praised was contentment, modesty, frugality, 
These, these qualities of, of being, can I be with this? There's this blazing insight that's come up that says that you're enlightened. Can you sit there with it and say, maybe? Maybe I'm enlightened. Maybe I'm not enlightened. Better wait and see. Well, if we've trained ourselves with restraint, then we're inhibited in this tendency to grasp. But the process of training is not easy, as all of us will have come to understand by now. A little bit of meditation. You decide to meditate on the in-breath and the out-breath, and, and so you start applying effort to it, and, and then you start getting a headache because you're applying too much effort, and then after the meditation you stand up, stand up and you're all dizzy because you, your eyes don't focus and you've been trying too hard. And saying, oh, I better not be trying so hard. And so you try to pull back and, and then the next thing you know, you're fantasizing about ice cream and cheesecake and Jim Morrison <laughs> tunes or something. <laughs> Whatever. The mind goes all over the place. And so restraint is not easy. And so one of the images that uh, the traditions, the Buddhist traditions have often given is that like, like taming a wild animal, whether it's an elephant or a bull, something that's got tremendous energy. We're not, or a horse, we're not trying to break the animal. You know, if you break a, an elephant or if you break a horse, you won't have a trusting relationship with this, uh, this animal. You, know, you might have a controlling relationship, but we won't have a trusting, you won't have a trusting working relationship. So if you're too, rela- too relaxed about training this wild animal, well, splat, and then they'll, they'll squash you. You know, the horse will throw you off. The bull will trample you, whatever. So, yes, recognizing there is tremendous potential, there's tremendous passion in our hearts and in our minds and in our bodies. We want to train it, but there does need to be restraint, but it's also with respect. So if we have this, this view of relating to this tremendous energy that we have within us, but also relating to it with respect and patience, and so we're gauging it. It's like, you know, it's like cultivating a friendship. These days, if you mention the word discipline or morality, they're kind of such loaded and uncomfortable words that it's hard to use them. But these are the words we have in our language. And so perhaps another way of approaching it is to say, well, you know, we can have discipline, but with mindfulness, with respect, with kindness. And so if we exercise discipline in a way whereby we respect ourselves and we're patient. You know, when the mind is unruly and it keeps going off here and going off there, we don't get angry at ourselves. If we do, well, we hurt ourselves. There's a a, a, a chant that we do in in the monastery every fortnight when the monastic community get together and one of the monks recites all the rules. We all sit there and we listen to the recitation and and to checking to see we're keeping all the rules and so on. And then at the end of it, there's a chant we, we recite which says that this training wrongly grasped is like grasping the kusa grass, which is a, a, a grass they have in India, I guess, and a very sharp edge grass. If you grasp it in the wrong way, it cuts the hand. So even spiritual training, even the precepts, uh, the moral precepts that we keep or or the, like the effort to be restrained in speech over the next week. You decided to go on retreat for a week and to cultivate intensification, energy, to cultivate 
the ability to be restrained by saying no to yourself, not eating in the evening, no sneaking Mars bars out of your suitcase in the evening or whatever. Yeah. And then on the evening when you want to talk, you say, I really want to talk. How do we handle that energy? We've decided we want to learn to say no. How do we handle it? We respect it. That's the first thing. We respect that energy. We don't, we don't try and control it with will. If we just try and control it with will, we'll manage for a while, but then there'll be a big backlash. So essential in the training in cultivating precision and restraint is that we approach this unruly, undisciplined nature with respect. And also, it needs to be mentioned, that, um, that in our relationship, as I was saying before, with these trainings, whether it's the meditation technique or whether it's the precepts, that there's a real sense of interest in what we're doing. Hmm? So we have intensity and energy generated in various ways. We have precision, we have restraint, but also we have this personal sense of, of, of real interest in what do we come here for? What are we in this for? Don't be impressed with great as Ajahn Ponyo's and Ajahn Kalyana's talks might be. Don't be too impressed to the extent where you lose touch with what you're interested in. What you're interested in is what brought you here. There's a great, beautiful um, spiritual master in India in the last century, Sri Ramana Maharshi. And uh, he, he became very famous and had a huge ashram and, and thousands and thousands, tens of thousands of people would come there and, and uh, people would stay in his ashram. And, of course, there were tens of thousands of problems. You know, you get tens of thousands of people together, you get tens of thousands of problems. And, and he had a thing where anybody would ever come to him and start complaining about the monastery and what goes on there or the ashram. His answer was always, do you remember what you came here for? Remember what you came here for? Because that faith that inspires us to seek the way, to walk the way, that's our resource. That's our precious resource. That's our energy. Yeah? That's like the petrol in the tank. You may be driving a, the most beautiful Audi or you, know, you may be going to the most wonderful location, but the juice, you, know, you haven't reached the destination. You're not enlightened yet. You haven't got there. You've got the vehicle. You've got the teachings. But what's the juice? What are you running on? Yeah, the juice, the, the faith, the, the, the trust, the confidence, sadha and Pali, is the most precious thing. And this is very much connected with this quality of personal interest or a sense of creative involvement with our practice. Yeah. Like I was saying in the beginning, if we're not careful, we can be grasping at our ideals and trying to become something. We can become like spiritual technicians. And even though... There is a faith, there is a confidence, there is a trust, there is it. We do believe in a real reality. We know we don't think this is just a ghastly, chaotic mess. There are people who feel that way and they have to develop coping strategies. We don't believe in that. That's not what we're about. We believe there is a real reality. We call it Dhamma in Buddhism and we're interested in realizing it, being this Dhamma. So because of that trust, that confidence, we have this energy, this inspiration, this, this trust we're willing to dare to do something new. Now, if we don't protect this, we can lose it. So, again, as over the next week, those of you here on retreat in particular, but for all of us, as we go about our daily life, checking to see the way we relate to the spiritual teachings, 
that we hear and the, and the spiritual techniques that we pick up. To not lose, not lose connection to that precious sense of personal involvement. It's you that's suffering. Mm-hmm. I lived with Ajahn Chah for years. I, Ajahn Tate I lived with them. They didn't suffer, you know. But as the Buddha also, he said, I can't, I can't get you enlightened. All I can do is point the way. And so if we're busy, you know, the Buddha's pointing the way and we're busy looking at the finger, what is that? I mean, that's stupid, isn't it? You know, the Buddha's pointing the way and we're sitting looking at the finger. That's what, that's what animals do. Have you ever noticed? That's what animals do. You, you know, you point an animal to go in this direction. The animals, they look at your finger. Yeah? Human beings, fortunately, have a, another level of, of, of intelligence which through past experience and extrapolation can realize that the assumption of the person pointing is not to look at the finger, but to look in the direction that the teacher is pointing. So, again, we've got to be very careful that we don't lose our interest in the goal, which is freedom for us, freedom from suffering. We are the ones that are suffering. If, unfortunately, we stay stuck and enamored with our teachers and the teachings and we keep looking at the finger too much, well, this can become clouded. That, that, that interest, that real personal interest. In, how do I come to terms with this anger that I've got? Or this, this desire, this greed? Well, if we've really got that question there, how do I come to terms with this disappointment, this sadness, this suffering? Yeah. Well, then when the teacher says, well, suffering is not self. Don't believe in the way the self appears to be. And so if we're heedless we can take what the Buddha said, don't believe in the way the self appears to be and grasp at it. If we're heedless, we can just hear that and we can say, all right, there's no self. And we can grasp at the idea there's no self. Well, if there's no self, there's no me, there's no mind, this is not my anger. This is not my anger, I am not angry. I'm not angry, I am not angry. (laughs) And it goes deeper and deeper. And then you practice samadhi, you focus on the breath, (laughs) shoulders up around your neck, face getting redder (laughs) I am not angry (laughs) and the anger goes down deeper and deeper and you compound it into your nervous system and it becomes even more difficult to access well I'm joking sort of but not totally because some people do use their relationship to the meditation teachings in that way and they lose touch with the fact that I'm suffering with this anger and I'm interested to deal with it they lose touch with that I'm interested to deal with it and grasp too much look too closely at the finger pointing so to it needs to be encouraged that this, we, we can't compromise our relationship with faith or trust or confidence it's precious it's really important this interest we have in, in my suffering when I get angry you know sometimes it's better to say this is my anger not being too quick to just say there's no self there's no anger or desire, you know, there's no self, there's nobody here. You know, well, if you think that, well, you know, somebody comes and stands on your foot, are you sure there's nobody there? You know, I'm sure if somebody stands on your foot, there's somebody there very quick. Yeah. This is my anger. Yeah. I am angry, and this is what it feels like. This is what it feels like. And I'm angry about being angry, and this is what being angry about anger feels like. It stinks. It really stinks. And then the next thing comes, actually, I don't want to be this way. That's very good. That's another level of energy. That's another level of interest. That enthusiasm to be free from anger. Yeah. And the same with desire. This is, I want. I absolutely want to eat more. 
This is one of, the, one of the difficulties you find in this retreat is the food. I'm sorry to tell you, but the food in this retreat is going to be exceptionally good. And you'll find it very difficult to restrain yourselves. Um, the cook is brilliant, and the generosity is phenomenal. And uh, you're just going to suffer every time you take too much, and that's all there is to it. <laughs> However, what you can do is you can stand there in front of Ian's latest lasagna and you can say, I want another spoonful of lasagna. I've taken two already. I want another one. I do. I mean, it's unbelievable. Ian's lasagna. I definitely want another one. You can stand there and say, I want a third spoonful of lasagna. I want, I want. Now, if you really do this mindfully... Because this is you that's suffering. It's not Ian that's suffering. Ian's having a great time. He, he's the cook. He's being generous. And he's just getting off on making you all happy. And he doesn't know that you're in hell over having eaten too much yesterday and the day before. And, you know, he's happy. You're the one that's suffering. So that's what you've got to be interested in. And you're suffering. I want. And this is hurting. This is hurting. I'm getting hot. I'm standing here. The people behind me are getting fed up because I'm busy trying to be mindful over taking my lasagna. <laughs> So, but, but the point I'm trying to make is that if you're really there with your desire, you say, I want to eat lasagna, actually that, that, that takes the struggle out of it. It becomes a struggle when we're trying to not feel desire. It becomes a struggle when we're trying to not feel angry. It becomes a struggle when we're trying to not feel sad. If we've prepared ourselves with mindfulness in the body, in the heart, in the mind, and we've got this ability to be restrained, we're not... So if you I want, we don't get lost in it. We don't become the desire. I referred a minute ago to this tendency in some religious teachings to tell us that you're damaged goods and you've got to become something more. Yeah. The image Ajahn Chah gave was, he says, the heart is like water, pure water. It's just it's got all sorts of coloured dyes and stuff floating around in it doesn't matter how much colour or what colour is floating around in the water. The nature of the water is still pure water. The nature of the heart is still peaceful, pure. What we need to do is to realise what it takes to to recognise what's behind all the apparent obstructions, all the apparent chaos. And that's a very different approach. And so when it means there's anger, there's anger. No Anatta, you know, trying to get rid of what, or Abhidhamma, trying to understand, you know, the different aspects of mind states that produce this. You know, that's okay in one sense to get us ready, but when it really comes down to there being anger, get really interested in it, or desire, get really interested in it, so that we're not becoming somebody who's free from anger, but we're being somebody who's taking responsibility for this, and then the faith is. Nurtured, the faith increases because as we do that, what happens is we're being more honest. You know? And to really admit, actually, I'm really angry. I really, I really, I'm so fed up with Buddhism. There was a period in my life as a junior monk where I was just, you know, looking at a Buddha image, I just felt nauseous. Somebody started teaching loving kindness meditation. You know, I just wanted to whack them. You know, I just was so full of, I mean, all this toxic stuff. I don't know what it was. It, I was just, just all this toxin was coming out. This is, this is a few years ago, I can assure you now. So, um, in fact, it was my first year as a monk. <laughs> and it was a very, very unpleasant 
experience. I, just, I really, literally, on one level, absolutely hated Buddhism. On one level. Yeah. And all this stuff coming out. But fortunately, I had enough confidence, enough trust, for whatever reason, perhaps some of the people that I'd had a chance to live with had inspired me, to see it out and not believe in that and didn't lose touch with the confidence, the trust, that it is possible to do something about this. It doesn't matter how bad it appears. When you get peers, when you get to that feeling, if I can't stand this anymore, that's just the way it appears. It just looks that way. How many times have we been in that space before? And It's not like that. That's not the reality. That's the apparent reality. Mm-hmm. And so, in that situation also, um, where you know, we have these conflicting perspectives or conflicting feelings, like, for instance, you know, my, my sense of, of, on one hand, you know, loving the Dhamma. You know, I felt so fortunate to be a monk and to be living in Thailand and access these great teachers and great teachings. But on another level, I'm having this emotional reaction where I just, I just don't want to see another Buddha image ever. How do you handle that? Well, there's another quality that is really essential and identifying, uh, and particularly in this context of talking about generating energy, which is very important, also mindful restraint or precision, and then cultivating or maintaining a sense of confidence and personal involvement of that practice. Also, the other point that really needs to be highlighted is the cultivation of the heart of loving-kindness. Because if we don't have access to the heart of loving-kindness, then the mind can be very rigid. We can be very... Our tendency to take sides and to be lost in our habits of picking and choosing can throw us off course, can throw us out of balance. And so whilst cultivating the heart of loving-kindness, yes, it puts us in touch with with a, 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 a natural a very natural native sense of well-being, also what cultivating the heart of loving-kindness gives us is an agility of mind, an agility of heart. We can tolerate ambiguity. When there's there's a heart of loving-kindness, we can hear positions that are apparently ambiguous, but we don't have to take sides. Maybe over the next week, you know, Ajahn Punyo gives a Dhamma talk in the morning and says it's like this, and then in the evening, Ajahn Kalyana says it's like that. And I think, oh, these guys don't agree. You know, these guys have got a problem. They should sort it out. You know, or maybe Buddhism's got a problem. Yeah, yeah. Not necessarily. You, know. you don't know. You say, well, it's like this on one level. It's like that on another level. I know in that experience in, in Thailand, you know, I didn't have the concept in those days to understand that you can, on one level, this is a multidimensional practice we're involved in. On one level you can feel this way, on another level you can be completely different in your approach or your attitude. And the complexity of life, if we don't have a heart of loving kindness, the complexity of life is, is well, quite frankly, is intolerable, really. So however much energy we might be generating and however restrained we are and however strong our faith or our our personal creative involvement in practices, if we don't have a heart of loving-kindness, we're really vulnerable, really, really vulnerable. And so in terms of talking about these, these, these aspects of the path tonight, I want to highlight these particular four, but particularly the heart of loving-kindness. This is the quality that means that we can integrate 
apparently ambiguous aspects of our consciousness. We all have them. You know, my, for years, it took me many, many years to recognize that I can respect aspects of the Christian teachings and I can be a committed Buddhist monk. You know, for many years, I thought I had to cut that out. You know, that's it. You know, I, I definitely do not agree with teaching children that you're damaged goods and that when you die, you've got one chance you're going up or you're going down. I think that is a very bad story to infect any being with at all. I think it's very damaging. It's psychic abuse, I would say, actually, to infect somebody with that kind of a, a story. So I definitely do not agree with that. However, there's much more to Christianity than that, much more. And so part of me was having a problem with, you know, how can I accommodate this? And yet, you know, there were that. And Well, you know, probably there's a lack of loving kindness. As, we, as the heart becomes imbued with loving kindness, we can, we can integrate these things. Teachers from this teacher, I mean, there's certain Buddhist teachers around who I've read of different, teach, different traditions and, and had tremendous benefit. I'm hugely indebted to them for, for what I've, I've received from them. But actually, some of them were downright drunks, you know, <laughs> complete drunks, alcoholics, and, and seriously uh, lacking on all sorts of levels that I think are very important. That's all right. I mean, it's not all right for them. I'm sorry for them. But it doesn't mean to say that everything they taught wasn't right. We can hear... We can hear what that teacher says and discern, eventually discern, because we're not compulsively picking and choosing. We're not compulsively taking sides. That's what the discriminative faculty does. That's what our discriminative intelligence, which our education is so good at doing, and we're we're all so fortunate, so lucky to have had this wonderful scientific education that's so advanced in cultivating the discriminative intelligence. But what about the unitive faculty? How much education did we get at that? You know, a little bit of poetry, a little bit of music maybe, you know, which is going in the right direction, but nowhere near enough. You know, the unitive faculty, the heart of loving kindness, yes, most of us, I'm sure all of us, were fortunate to receive some of it from our parents, but to recognize that the heart of loving kindness is a, is a skill that we can identify and recognize and we can work on, we can cultivate just because we've got a lot of anger doesn't mean to say that we always have to be that way. We're not victims. We can cultivate the heart of loving kindness. And I'm sure over the next week uh, there will be an opportunity um, from these two monks to, um, to listen to their teachings on this theme. So this evening uh, I'd like to offer these thoughts for your consideration. Thank you very much for your attention. And I, um,